This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To Congress, January 3rd, 1810. The act authorizing a detachment of 100,000 men from the militia will expire on the 30th of March next. Its early revival is recommended in order that timely steps may be taken for arrangement such as the act contemplated. I submit to the consideration of Congress, moreover, the expediency of such a classification and organization of the militia, as will best ensure prompt and successive aids from that source adequate to emergencies which may call for them. It will rest with them also to determine how far further provisions may be expedient for putting into actual service, if necessary, any part of the naval armament not now employed. At a period presenting features in the conduct of foreign powers towards the United States, which impose on them the necessity of precautionary measures involving expense, it is a happy consideration that such is the solid state of the public credit that reliance may be justly placed on any legal provision that may be made for restoring to it in a convenient form and to an adequate amount. James Madison. As 1809 gave way to 1810, the big question in Washington circles, and particularly within the Madison administration, was what to do about the European situation. From the high point of a few months prior of thinking that a deal with the British had been achieved, hopes of peace and prosperity had been dashed by the news that not only the deal, but the one representative of that government with which a Democratic-Republican administration had been able to work with had both been repudiated. Insult was at its injury when the worst of all options for a replacement had arrived in Washington and had proven just as intransigent as his reputation suggested. In the wake of the failed negotiations with British Minister to the U.S. Francis James Jackson, the President and his Cabinet had to do an honest assessment to determine just what options there were left, or if war really was just around the corner. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to take a moment to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Katie from the Queen's Podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. On their podcast, Katie and her co-host Nathan examine the lives and legacies of various queens in world history, all while enjoying delicious cocktails. Now, Katie and Nathan would be the first to tell you that they do use strong language in their podcast, so if that's not your thing, theirs might not be the podcast for you. However, if that doesn't bother you, or if you prefer some colorful language in your ears, then you should go to check them out to learn about the various fascinating individuals that they cover. You can find more information on their podcast at queenshistorypodcast.com. 
that's all one word, dot com, or you can search for Queen's Podcast anywhere fine podcasts can be found. Dear friends, I appreciate your patience as we've gone on a number of tangents recently, including but not limited to Dolly Madison, John Marshall, Napoleonic Europe, John Jacob Astor, and the Yazoo Controversy. I promise you, this is still a series on the presidency of James Madison. But, as always, the aim of this podcast is to not just look at the individual holding the office of president. Rather, my scope is charged to explore all of the individuals and events that impact the outcome of a presidency, be it for better or worse. In President Madison's case, his term of office was an awesome conflux of so many leaders, trends, and events, more so than any presidency we've explored together to date. I have to admit, I've had some anxiety about whether I'll be able to present it in a logical, digestible way. I haven't seen any examination of the Madison presidency, which has tried to incorporate as much as I am planning. But the more I learn, the more I understand how all these disparate parts are key to understanding the whole. And if one or more is left off, the times and the presidency will be misunderstood as I believe they have been in the past. We will have some more seeming tangents ahead, but I ask for your space, grace, and trust that I will bring it all together all in due time and will always circle back around to Washington to gauge the impact of some of these disparate threads on the administration. Please know that I don't take your time and attention for granted. The aim of your friendly neighborhood podcaster is always to deliver to you the very best. With that said, let's dive in. Back in episode 4.8, we left off with the various duels and assaults that were occurring among prominent figures in Washington around the time that President Madison was sending his first annual message to Congress in December 1809. Behind the scenes, while all that was going on, the administration and Democratic-Republican leaders were strategizing. It was obvious that the Non-Intercourse Act, which had been passed nearly a year prior and was set to expire in a few months' time, was not achieving its aims. As noted by Madison biographer Noah Feldman, quote, Madison had three options in the face of continued British and French seizures of U.S. shipping. Acquiescence, war, or economic sanctions. By this point, two attempts at economic coercion had failed, and instead had only resulted in chaotic economic conditions for American business. Thus, it's understandable why some folks might advocate just throwing their hands up and saying this was a battle the U.S. couldn't win. Then, as now, though, pride is often a strong motivating factor. In the early 19th century, as Europe could attest, war was often the approach taken by nations to resolve disputes. However, given the military position of the U.S. Army and Navy, namely its poor shape compared to the forces wielded by Britain and France, that would most likely be a losing proposition. Besides, President Madison was predisposed to think that there was another way, particularly as he had advocated in the course of his career for economic coercion and had been a principal architect of the plan that had become the embargo. With that, even Madison acknowledged that there had been fundamental issues with the plans that had been put in place to date. The Embargo Act had been too much of a blanket solution. Just cut off foreign trade altogether. 
Not like that would cause any issues for the burgeoning American merchant industry, right? The Non-Intercourse Act was at least a bit more targeted to just Britain and France and offered as a carrot an incentive to resolve the issues that the U.S. had with either nation. But the devil had been in the details in terms of presidential authority and for the nation that didn't resolve their issues with the U.S. first, there was the potential for further deteriorating relations. Thus, on December 19, 1809, another bill was introduced which attempted to at least address the former problem, if not the latter. Representative Nathaniel Macon, Democratic-Republican from North Carolina and former Speaker of the House, put forward a bill on that date which would come to be known as Macon's Bill No. 1, for reasons which shall become obvious in a moment. As described by Gallatin biographer Nicholas Dungan, quote, It was essentially a short-term diplomatic negotiating ploy. It imposed severe restrictions on British and French shipping and imports to the United States, but authorized the president to relax these if and when France or Britain removed their restrictions. And the bill was set to expire on March 4, 1810. In his biography of Senator Samuel Smith, Democratic-Republican from Maryland, Frank Castle says that Macon's Bill No. 1 was a, quote, plan devised by Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin and approved by Madison as a replacement for the Non-Intercourse Act. Feldman attributes number one with Gallatin, but credits Madison with the sequel, which you would expect with something dubbed number one, and that we'll get to in a minute. Though number one passed the House, it ultimately failed in the Senate due to Senator Smith and his colleagues who have been dubbed the Invisibles and were coalescing at this point as a force with which to be reckoned in the upper House of Congress, due to their opposition to Secretary of the Treasury Gallatin in particular, and increasingly to the Madison administration in general. Smith, as the chairman of the committee to which the bill was sent, convinced the committee to send forward a proposed new version of the bill, which eliminated everything except for a ban of armed British or French ships entering American ports. This was completely unacceptable to the House, and thus, Macon's Bill No. 1 died. From its ashes, a revised bill came forward, though this one was from Representative John Taylor, Democratic-Republican from South Carolina. This bill picked up the idea from Macon's bill to give the president more authority, but this one took another approach. Rather than beginning with the prohibition of trade, it instead proposed reopening trade with both Britain and France. The carrot in this scenario was that should either France or Britain exempt American shipping from its prohibition of neutral trade with the other belligerent, the president would then be authorized to impose a non-intercourse decree on the other nation. Though Taylor put it forward, this bill would ultimately be dubbed Macon's Bill No. 2. I should note here that Rutland disputes Feldman and instead credits Gallatin for this one as well. But for my part, and please get those grains of salt at the ready, Madison and Gallatin were working so closely together that I'm not sure we can define where one ends and the other begins, and I don't think that either would have acted without the other's approval. This new bill was quickly criticized as being too weak, including by the person whose name was undeservedly attached to it. Representative Macon remarked that this new bill, quote, did not appear to be of much consequence. I would argue, however, that it is a reflection of the circumstances of the moment. The blanket embargo had failed. A more targeted embargo had failed. 
The nation could not go to war under present military circumstances, and there was no inclination in Congress to improve the situation. For a presidential message to Congress in January 1810, quote, proposing legislation that would allow Madison to create a volunteer regular force of 20,000 men and reenacting the law that authorized calling up and reorganizing 100,000 militia had received nothing more than a pro forma acknowledgement of receipt. Castle, Dungan, and the biographer of Secretary of State Robert Smith, Tom Armstrong, all critique Madison for providing no executive leadership at this point and ceding authority to Congress, which itself was divided. But I'd like to push back on that for a moment to ask what alternatives Madison had. He had inherited a less than optimal foreign policy situation and a divided party from his predecessor. He had to find compromises that folks could get behind and that could potentially improve the situation when possible. And that was Macon's Bill Number 2. Even Madison understood its flaws, as noted by Rutland. But in this, and with a diplomatic eye that was, quote, sharpened for international duplicity, the president saw an opening to appeal to French Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte. The British had made it clear that they were in no mood to negotiate. The signal came loud and clear from Francis James Jackson. Thus, if the British couldn't be won over directly, maybe an appeal to the French could work. As Rutland wrote, quote, There was no reason for Britain to call off its orders in council because the new law virtually invited the British to resume trade by using American ships and re-exporting American goods to French-held Europe through a licensing system. Rather than being a foolhardy, ill-conceived scheme, as it's often been painted in hindsight, Macon's Bill Number 2, on paper, would not only allow American commerce to recover after two years of being shut off from its largest trading partners, but also allow diplomatic leverage for the U.S. If Napoleon wanted to close the loopholes around his continental system, all he had to do was come to terms with the U.S. They had done good deals in the past. Can anyone say Louisiana Purchase? This could very well be a new day in Franco-American relations. It would take some wrangling in the legislative halls, but finally, on the last day of the legislative session, May 1st, 1810, Macon's Bill Number 2 was passed and sent on to the president for his signature, which was quickly affixed. Indeed, as noted by historian Donald R. Adams, quote, Macon's Bill Number 2 provided for an interlude in the commercial warfare between the United States and Europe, which benefited American commercial interests. But the uncertainty was still there that, quote, at any time, trade with England or the continent could be closed down, making the purchase of goods for import a risky undertaking. Meanwhile, the situation had only exacerbated the political divide in the Democratic-Republican faction. Senator Smith wrote to former Representative Wilson Carey Nicholas, Democratic-Republican from Virginia, on May 25th that, with the political breakdown in the federal government, quote, the executive blames the Senate, the people blame the House, and the Senate knows where the blame justly attaches itself, but are silent. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. 
Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. In the midst of the political intrigues in Washington, a new diplomat was settling into his new post in the U.S. The former Spanish minister to the U.S., Arujo, who we discussed extensively in the Jefferson presidency series and who often ended up at odds with that administration, had finally been moved to another post. And in October 1809, the 47-year-old Don Luis Dionis y González arrived to assume the role of Spanish minister to the U.S., Unlike his predecessor, Onis arrived not as the representative of the Spanish king, but rather the nationalist Republican junta that had been established in the absence of the monarch, as Spanish king Carlos IV and his son, the crown prince Fernando, still remained in the custody of French emperor Napoleon. In case you missed it, we discussed Napoleon's somewhat successful gambit to take control of Spain back in episode 3.39. Given the questionable legitimacy of the junta government, the Madison administration withheld recognition. But Onis also wasn't turned away, as it would be beneficial to have someone on hand who could provide more information on what was happening both on the Iberian Peninsula and with the Spanish colonies in the Americas. As described by Samuel Flagg Bemis, Onis was, quote, a gentleman most respectable and amiable in private life. He was not a person of wide culture or reading. He was a man of the world, experienced, vigilant, laborious, ever attentive to his duties. Easily variable in his political complexion, he was a man of mental reservations, hackneyed in the traditional ways of Spanish diplomacy, full of ingenious contrivances and devices, of workings and windings. We'll have to see whether he is able to achieve a better relationship with the Madison administration than his predecessor did with Jefferson and his cabinet. But before we finish with this episode, we'll get a glimpse into a potential complication in Onis getting on good footing with the American executive. One area in which all European diplomats to the U.S. at the time struggled was in overcoming cultural differences. A poignant example of this was when Russian chargé d'affaires André de Dashkov threw a ball on March 26, 1810, in order to commemorate the coronation anniversary of Russian Tsar Alexander. Part of the celebration included, quote, a transparency of a crown being displayed in his window. For anti-monarchical Americans, this was taken as a public insult, and an American naval officer began to express his discontent. Dashkov was in the process of having the transparency taken down when, quote, the officer took aim and fired two shots through Dashkov's window. Though it doesn't seem that anyone was injured, Dashkov was understandably insulted and wrote back to a correspondent in Russia that, though the matter was being handled by local authorities, he felt, quote, that the federal government should have intervened on his behalf. For Ernest, though, the problem in establishing good relations with the Madison administration would come about due to conflicting interest. The borderlands between the United States and the Spanish-held North American colonies had been a flashpoint for the better part of a decade, as we've discussed in previous episodes. Between raids by American filibusters, undefined borders, disputes over American trade down rivers controlled by prominent Spanish ports, 
and the escape of enslaved individuals from the U.S. in Spanish territory with little support from Spanish authorities in recapturing the runaways, the tensions continued to rise during the presidency of Thomas Jefferson. At that point, there were three colonies directly bordering American territory. The most distant colony from the American capital was the province of Tejas, with its undefined border somewhere around the area of the Speen River. As described by Donald Chipman and Harriet Denise Joseph, quote, a non-Indian population in Texas of fewer than 3,000, largely vacant and dilapidated missions, two fixed presidios, three settlements, and two roads were the only memorials of Spain's imperial enterprises in this primeval kingdom. Though, as we discussed in the Jefferson presidency series, there had been a couple of flare-ups and disputes on that border. At the time when Madison assumed the presidency, the primary tensions were along the borders with the Floridas. As described by historian James Cusick, quote, These two colonies, West and East Florida, which controlled the southeast corner of the American continent, including the mouths of several important waterways, had become a troublesome inconvenience to settlers in the southern and western portions of the United States. East Florida was the less developed of the two. Again from Cusick, quote, Spanish East Florida greeted the 19th century as a province virtually devoid of people, a place rich in land and poor in inhabitants. Compared to the over a quarter of a million people just to the north in Georgia in 1810, East Florida had only 3,690 people as of 1811. Again from Cusick, quote, Fernandina and St. Augustine, both coastal ports, were the only towns. The former, with a population of 600, had grown into a modest center of shipping. St. Augustine, lacking Fernandina's prosperous trade, could still claim preeminence as the larger of the two towns, the colonial capital, and, with a founding date of 1565, the oldest European settlement on the Atlantic seaboard. It supported a population of 1,500 and was the center of political, social, and religious life in East Florida. On paper, West Florida was the most successful of the Spanish provinces on the border, but it faced some significant challenges in the post-Louisiana Purchase world. Though the common historical narrative has been that West Florida was mismanaged under the Spanish regime, from the scholarship that I've read, and in particular Andrew McMichael's Atlantic Loyalties, Americans in Spanish West Florida, 1785-1810, to it seems that matters related to land sales and settlement in West Florida were much better managed in a sustainable, productive manner than in some comparable Western settlements in the U.S., like Kentucky. Like with the other Spanish borderland colonies, West Florida struggled with attracting new settlers, and thus, in August 1787, a royal order was issued to, quote, formally allow Americans to settle in West Florida. Unlike an American frontier land such as Kentucky, the Spanish government in West Florida required that, quote, the land claimant proved the ability to cultivate the land and improved it. Thus, they avoided the rampant, out-of-control land speculation west of the Appalachians that had challenged American authorities and citizens. It also, quote, actively encouraged settlement, as the landholder had to live on and work the land in some fashion. McMichael describes the economy of West Florida as follows, quote, Although many, if not most, West Floridians engaged in simple plantation agriculture to earn a living, other, more complex industries grew up in the Baton Rouge area. 
Focusing in on that area, McMichael asserts that, quote, there, i.e., Spanish administration in the Baton Rouge district provided residents with a means of gaining land and engaging in plantation agriculture. Almost anyone with the means of working the land and improving it could gain land grants in the area fairly easily. Furthermore, in comparison to settlement north and east of the area, land distribution policy worked quite equitably. The main problem that challenged West Florida, though, and in particular after the Louisiana Purchase, was the same one that challenged American settlements west of the Appalachians prior to the Purchase, namely New Orleans. Just like any settlement of the time in the Mississippi River Basin, West Florida's economy was closely aligned to New Orleans, at least the western portion of it in and around Baton Rouge. The Mobile District was its own animal, but the principal settlement activity in West Florida centered around Baton Rouge and the Feliciana frontier along the river north of Baton Rouge. While New Orleans had only played a small role in the larger economic scheme of the greater Spanish Empire, New Orleans played a disproportionate role in the economy of West Florida. Thus, when New Orleans fell into American hands in 1803, the West Floridians found themselves in the same position as Americans had when New Orleans was under Spanish control. A key port that their economy depended on was held by a foreign power, and their rights to utilize it for their commerce could at any time be taken away. Furthermore, there were plenty of prominent Americans who wanted to bring West Florida into the American fold, not the least of which was the governor of the neighboring Orleans Territory, William C.C. Claiborne. Since assuming his post in December 1803, Claiborne had been managing various precarious situations. In addition to attempting to bring together competing interests and groups within the territory, being so close to the edge of the American frontier and so far away from the nation's capital provided its own unique set of challenges. Despite being governor for nearly seven years by the summer of 1810, Claiborne had made little headway in garnering the support of the French planners in and around New Orleans. In fact, he often, whether intentionally or not, committed social faux pas in various instances, which further enraged the planner class. At one point, some of their key leaders went to Washington to petition Jefferson to replace Claiborne as governor. Still, Claiborne remained at his post, and he was increasingly seeing problems coming from his territory's close proximity to Spanish territory, especially as the situation of the Spanish government became increasingly unstable. Though we've talked about the problems on the Iberian Peninsula, there's another more local issue identified by historian Andrew McMichael. Charles-Louis Boucher de Grandpré, despite coming from French ancestry, had been a trusted servant of the Spanish crown since they had taken West Florida from the British in 1783. He was well known in the Baton Rouge community before he became the governor of the Baton Rouge district in 1799. In the midst of difficulties posed by American filibustering expeditions led by the Kemper brothers and the Louisiana Purchase, Grand Play had proved to be an able administrator who the local leaders saw as a valuable partner. As described by McMichael, quote, his family was intimately connected to Baton Rouge society, and as governor, he moved among the upper class of West Florida. He was by no means the wealthiest man in Baton Rouge, although his position brought with it a grant of land from the crown. 
The problem came, however, when Grand Play was first recalled to Cuba as part of an investigation on the actions of a captured French agent who Grand Play had hosted at his home, not knowing of his connections to the French government. The citizens of Baton Rouge were upset and first sent a petition, then, after Grand Play was about to return to Havana to defend himself, held a meeting which developed a, quote, proposal that Cuban officials postpone Grand Play's recall and allow him to remain in West Florida to train his successor. They even offered to pay Grand Play a salary themselves if he were allowed to remain. Unfortunately, this put Grand Play in a more difficult situation as he left, as it put him awkwardly between his fellow citizens and his Spanish superiors. Grand Play had little time to sort things out, though, for a few months later, in April 1809, he died in Havana. Grand Play's death not only took a trusted local leader off the field in West Florida, but it also opened up a vacancy that had to be filled by someone. Grand Play's successor, Carlos de Holt de los Sus, is described by McMichael as, quote, a man about whom not much is known other than that West Floridians despised both him and his secretary from the outset. In large part, de la Sus suffered from the fact that he was not Grand Play. His tenure, however, also brought with it complaints of bribery, increased taxes and fees, and open corruption. This instability in West Florida alarmed not only Orleans Territorial Governor Claiborne, but also his counterpart in the Mississippi Territory, David Holmes. Unlike Claiborne, Holmes was new to his role, having only assumed the office in 1809. Prior to that, Holmes, a Virginian by birth, had served for 12 years in the U.S. House of Representatives. Though McMichael remarks that, quote, no letters survive linking Holmes directly to the events in West Florida in 1810, circumstantial evidence nonetheless points to his support and encouragement of those growing opponents to Spanish authority. One who we do know was actively engaged in efforts to seek change in West Florida is Governor Claiborne. In June 1810, William Claiborne traveled to Washington, D.C. to meet with President Madison and administration officials to advocate for, quote, covert paramilitary action to topple the Spanish government in West Florida without starting a war between the United States and Spain. Now, this may sound a bit like a pipe dream scenario, but it was a plan that aimed to take advantage of the present situation. The local leaders were already agitating against the new governor, de la Sus. The Spanish government as a whole was in disarray, and it would likely be near impossible for reinforcements to come in time to combat an uprising in a colony that, while previously one of the most stable of the Spanish colonies in the area, was not all that lucrative of a prospect. By avoiding a direct invasion, Madison and the U.S. government would have plausible deniability. Instead, as described by Rasmussen, quote, Claiborne presented his plans to President Madison. A small group of hand-picked adventurers would be enlisted to attack the Spanish garrison at Baton Rouge, seize power, declare independence, and then request annexation to the United States. The United States would condemn the action publicly and reluctantly agree to annex the rogue state for the sake of national security. If this sounds rather similar to later annexations like 
oh, say, Hawaii, if you were ever wondering where the idea came from, you can now see Claiborne's hand in that. Also, before you think that Claiborne only had his focus on West Florida, as noted by historian Jared W. Bradley, quote, there is little doubt that Claiborne wanted to seize both Floridas. West Florida made for a logical starting point in that process due to the state of affairs they are already being ripe for exploitation by the U.S. And once that was safely in American hands, they could work on East Florida. Claiborne was not alone, however, in advocating for this plan to Madison. If the name John Adair of Kentucky sounds familiar to some of our long-term listeners, then let me share with you the context that Adair has appeared in the podcast to date. Adair was an associate of General James Wilkinson's from their Revolutionary War days who was implicated in the Burr conspiracy. I won't go into much detail about that here, and instead will refer you back to episodes 3.27, 3.31, 3.34, and 3.35 for more on his involvement with that. I will say, however, that Adair was one of the folks arrested as part of the crackdown on the conspiracy, by his old pal Wilkinson, no less, which, of course, comes as no shock if you know anything about Wilkinson. Though he had been released and not charged by the grand jury in the conspiracy trial, the accusations against Adair in this highly publicized trial meant that he would be defending his reputation for the rest of his life. However, if one was considering a covert action to acquire territory in the West, who better to consult than with someone with a vast range of knowledge about the West, including recent intel on the situation in West Florida, which Adair had recently visited. Given his involvement with Burr and Wilkinson over the years, Adair was certainly one that could be counted on for discretion. And President Madison would want to keep this plan quiet, as it was a staunch departure from Thomas Jefferson's policy, which was focused more on acquiring the Floridas by treaty. After careful deliberation and consultation, Madison agreed with the plan, and Claiborne was authorized to send a letter to a member of the Orleans Territory Executive Council, William Wyckoff, Jr. Wyckoff, like a number of folks in the region, had business interests in both the Orleans Territory and West Florida, and thus had some well-placed contacts across the border. Claiborne in his letter charged Wyckoff with, quote, going to West Florida and informing the inhabitants that the United States would welcome them if they arranged a popular convention and made a formal request for annexation to the United States. In closing, Claiborne urged discretion upon Wyckoff. This connection to the highest corners of the federal government couldn't be known if this was to work as planned. As this letter makes its way south and plans to bring West Florida into the Union get underway, it will take some time for everything to play out, and we must unfortunately draw this episode to a close. Don't worry, dear listener. We'll return to the region of my birth before too long to see the culmination of these efforts. But we'll need to check in on some other developments in the next episode. I hope you'll join me as we continue in our journey to understand the complex threads leading steadily towards war. Before we part ways, though, I must extend my thanks again to Katie from the Queen's Podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. Be sure to check out Queen's Podcast anywhere fine podcasts can be found or by going to their website, Queen's History Podcast, that's all one word, dot com. 
I'll be sharing information about their podcast on my social media around the release of this episode, and I'll have a link on the sources section for this episode on my website at Presidency's Podcast, again, all one word, dot com. There, you can also find information about the itinerant band, who graciously allowed us the use of clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as the intro and outro music for this episode. I often listen to the itinerant band while working on scripts, and I cannot recommend their music enough. I hope you'll take some time to give them a listen. The website also provides information about how you, yes, you, dear listener, can help support the podcast. One of the quickest and easiest ways is to leave the podcast a rating and review on Good Pods, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Podchaser. I recently had the following review left by Stacy on Podchaser. Quote, I've always been fascinated by the American presidency, but this show brings an insight that is unique. The host is incredibly knowledgeable and has an instinct for putting historical figures in context that is pure brilliance. Thanks so much to Stacy and to everyone who has left a review thus far. Ratings and reviews really do help to get the word out there about the podcast so that folks know why they too should give presidencies a try. Special thanks also go out to the patrons of the podcast. Their support is key to making sure that I have the equipment and resources needed in order to keep the podcast available to all. In addition to that, so many of the patrons reach out on a regular basis to give me advice and encouragement, and that is so invaluable to this work. Thus, I'd like to thank Matthew C., Michelle, Jeremy, Ike, Joshua, Matthew N., Eric, Howard, Michael, and Scott. If you are so inclined to join them in becoming a patron of Presidencies, just go to patreon.com presidencies and sign up. I'd also like to thank Christian of Your Podcast Pal for his audio editing work on this episode. Christian's editing skills are invaluable to freeing up more of my time to research, script, record, and promote the podcast while still knowing that the audio quality is going to be on point. If you'd like to enlist his services for your podcast or audio project, just go to his website, yourpodcastpal, that's all one word, dot com. As for me, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to send me an email at presidencyspodcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow me on social media. I'm on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. You guessed it, all one word. Finally, I cannot end this episode without thanking you for listening. This journey through presidential history is all the more fulfilling for having you join me on it. And I hope you'll join me as we continue our exploration of the complexities of the Madison presidency. Until then, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. 
If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.